How do you know what you've read has been written by a human? Robojournalism, where news articles are entirely written by AI, is on the rise. What consequences for our consumption of news will this have? It's easy to be focused on the risks of misinformation, a lowering of journalistic quality, or a lack of emotion in what has been written. But as we'll see in this episode, there are some really positive potential impacts that robot journalists can have and are already having in newsrooms. Designing the robot revolution unpacks the tools, methods and trends influencing the work of creating wonderful automation, good for business, people and planet. We discuss the topics that come up when working on the front line of automation. And when we don't know what's going on, we ask a subject matter expert. The early days, you know, it was Washington Post uh, hosting, uh, you know, they generate, they built some robot that generated 800 texts. Uh, for from the Olympics in 2016 or something. There were a lot of big, like AP have been involved for a long time. They have a very, and they do really do good work. Uh, a lot of the big ones, you know, were able to do it. What the difference is with us is that we're mainly working with local media groups. Cecilia Campbell is a journalist and expert in digital transformation in the news media. As of 2018, she's been working in a team which is effectively driving the news publishing industry's adoption of content automation. Swedish tech startup United Robots is unique in the market in that they provide ready-to-publish robot-written editorial content specifically for news media. We asked Cecilia what robot journalism is to her and what she thinks it can bring to journalism as a whole. We don't actually at this point do like stock markets. We don't do Premier League. We do all the little stuff. And that's where we see we add the most value to publishers because these are, I mean, it's not one single local site it's usually a a local media group so we we start working with some sort of uh, like for example with McClatch in America we're working it's about I mean they kind of came at it from the point of view of AI more widely how can they use AI to kind of fill the gaps that they had in like the resources in in the newsrooms robots not the focus you know Um, they're not going to take over from the reporters there's always this like is it an e- it's not an either or, but that's where, it, where it's ended up, at least with people who are very early in the journey. And also, I wouldn't call it journalism because it's just information, basically. It's very routine reporting. And that's how McClatchy looked at it. Uh, you know, they can suddenly write about all these house sales that they couldn't do before. And people are super interested. So um, it just means better service for the readers. And then the journalists don't have to run around and do. I mean, they couldn't do it anyway. They would never have had have I had enough time for it. Michael Turnval is a journalist with more than 20 years experience in both print and broadcast media. For the last 15 years, his main focus has been on technology. In 2017, he authored a report for Ericsson entitled The Future of Journalism in a Network Society, exploring potential new business models and smarter journalism for the digital era. We asked Michael what he thought in 2017 when he wrote his report what has happened since, and whether he expected the robo-journalism landscape to look how it does now, some five years on from the report's publication. Yeah, I I would say uh, I did expect that we would see much more of uh, robots writing these uh, uh, very simple pieces. Like, for instance, I I mentioned in the report as well uh, that... that, uh, it has been used to write uh, uh, short uh, 
pieces about sports, uh, about quarterly reports from companies and so on. Uh, I would expect to see more of that and maybe a bigger volume of uh, just these very short pieces of information because there's so much that uh, we don't do today just because we don't have the time. We have like several hundreds companies listed at the Stockholm Stock Exchange. Uh, it would be quite easy for everybody to adopt that technology, uh, report about every single company every time they release a report. Uh, we don't really do that yet. Uh, also, uh, I did expect to see more about uh, AI being used in, in the presenting, especially sort of uh, prioritizing news. And maybe personalizing more about uh, how does the front page look to me and how does it look to you? Uh, I mean, you, you're based in Gothenburg. It, it would be what you see today is a very, very, very simple version of that with Dagens Nyheter. You have a front page that you can use it more uh, tilted towards news from uh, the West Coast. When I, while I live in Stockholm, I would see more news about Stockholm. But that's not a robot. Uh, doing any kind of that, it would be quite easy to, to have an algorithm to, to sort of prioritize the news based on your reading pattern. The problem why it hasn't taken off is that uh, we just don't feel comfortable having an AI algorithm doing something that we, we, we feel that we as journalists should be doing. Uh, we feel sort of that we hand over control to somebody we don't trust. And that comes back to, to the trust issue. Uh, and I, I think it, it uh, so, so part of it is probably caused by the debacle with the uh, social media, where you had no control and you had no input into those platforms about uh, the responsibility a publisher has. And of course, that went wrong. Uh, it would be easy to fix that uh, with a, an algorithm at, at a news site because we do feed it with all kind of uh, data about uh, journalistic integrity and, and so on. But, but, but part is just that we don't really feel comfortable letting a computer take over our job because we feel that we are so important that no com computer could possibly do what we do. I think one of the reasons that uh, I think about now why we, we don't see that is the debacles we had with Facebook and other platforms in the uh, the US elections, the uh, Brexit referendum and so on. We saw that uh, if we don't think through how we use this technology, things can go terribly bad. Uh, we actually used to have an algorithm do part of that job at Svenska Dahlbladet. And we turned it off, uh, not so much because we, we thought it uh, uh, created uh, some crazy bias towards anything, but it was more that we lost part of the control. We turn back to Cecilia to ask her how they deal with fake news and how they ensure that their news is accurate. I mean, in our case, yes, of course, you can point to the data. This is the source. If it's in the data, it's in the story. If it isn't, it's not. You know, like it's very straightforward. and normally. Yes, and normally if, it's, if there is a problem in a text, it's usually because the data was wrong, uh, you know, nothing else, uh, which is what we, yeah. 
we find. Of course, there are other things that happen along the way, but compared to how often oh, I had this classic comment on a post at LinkedIn where we had uh, written a headline for a link, which was like uh, grammatically incorrect. And then, of course, somebody jumped on us directly and say, oh, this is this tell you all, all you need to know about ro robot journalism. I said, yeah, but the thing is, the robot wouldn't have made that mistake. That headline was written by a human. Hello. So, yeah, effective. I'm waiting for that point where it's accepted in the industry because we still have so much pushback. I mean, I had a I had an email from a like some guy who was like a media consultant in the States who used to work at the New York Times. And he said, oh, robot journalism is disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourselves, you know? I think the phrase robot journalism is part of the problem. I really do. Because if he'd gone to look at actually, for McClatchy, this is now supporting their business. They're putting together newsletters now, a completely new product with where they have, um, you know, around real estate specifically, so they have reporters writing some of the deep stories that go out and then they fill them up with um, the local sales in everybody's respective area. And it's like something that they can, you know, help get subscribers that way. And so, I mean, we really when we say we, you know, we try to empower newsrooms, we mean it. It's not like and we see it happening, but it's very hard to convince people who just think it's like this whole robot versus human take you know I mean we still talk about robot journalism because the thing is everybody understands what we're on about automated content is in every industry so as ever the labels what we call things seems to really matter when it comes to adoption flesh and blood journalists seem to be having a bit of an issue accepting their new breed of newsroom colleagues and what this means for their role but what about the readers how do the consumers feel about content being written by robots or it was already in 2017 that part of the content will be created and curated by robots. So I think that people are much more comfortable with it. And you see that also in the use of social media. I mean, we've been talking about what happened in the 2016 elections for years now. People still consume news via social media. Uh, so I think there's much higher acceptance among readers uh, that uh, part of the job will be done by computers than it is among our journal uh, us journalists. We also asked Cecilia how this impacts her customers and how the perception of the readers is changed by there not being a person behind the words they're reading. Yeah, so... On the whole, that's like one step removed, obviously. So this is now what I've been told by our clients. Um, and it's really not an issue. Like in Sweden, uh, when in, you know, in 2018, 19, when this was like gaining traction, I think there was some initial uh, like content written in the newspaper, you know, about the robot content and stuff. And people, uh, either they don't really notice. I mean, we, there, there was an early survey they did, didn't really notice that it was written by a robot or and if they did it was very unclear whether they really cared and everybody usually people usually have a byline or and like a disclaimer so I, I think it's very much an inside issue in the industry one thing that we were really curious about going into these two interviews was the phenomenon of personalization 
and how media companies are using that today. Do they think this will be more of a thing? We started talking to Michael. I think we, we, we will see personalization. Uh, news sites will resist that. I can see that from my own organization. We don't like the idea uh, about uh, computers taking control. We feel that we are so much, we are so special that a computer could never do what we do. Uh, at the same time, I think that people will like it. People will like the idea that if I log into Svenska Dagbladet, I will see a slightly different site that is really tailored to my needs and interests. Everybody was talking about it three or four years ago, but it hasn't really evolved. I think there is like a, I mean, part of the point of having a news, newspaper or like subscribing to something is you find out the stuff you didn't know you didn't know. And like there is a point where you don't want it to all be, I mean, I think it also has to do with the filter bubbles and all of that, like the whole, you know, you, you want people to have a broader view. I mean, certainly, um, and of course, it's this is not built into our technology. This is something the publisher has to have uh, enabled on their side, because we do do, um, like in at Bergenstiedner, for example, where they also do real estate content, uh, they have a more granular sort of geographic segmentation than the Norwegian real estate industry has. So that, so they can get the right stores to the right neighborhoods. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they would put together uh, like one. I know Meet Media in Sweden, they did do. They had like about 800 different uh, clusters of people that would get their own sort of home page when they went because they have mostly direct traffic to their sites uh but they then bonnier bought them and that all went out the window uh but i think that a lot of them there is definitely a geographical sort of community personalization like if you live in this village uh and i know ntm another big group in sweden they are now um planning on setting up like sub sites for local communities so their automated content would really fit in perfectly um, to fill sort of those all those gaps. So what will the media landscape look like in 20 years' time? We asked Michael to give us his best guess of how things will evolve. We will use AI and robots more for things like fact-checking, research and so on. Uh, and in fact, uh, I thought about that just this morning. We already do that. I mean, when I research a story uh, almost every time one of the tools that i use to find information find people to talk to find relevant uh, papers articles and so on would be google well guess what what just happened was that i was using an ai algorithm to find the relevant information there are literally millions of researchers out there in different fields. How do I find the most relevant or the person that I think is relevant for my story? Well, an AI algorithm at Google just helped me. Uh, we can probably do much more in, in terms of that. Uh, I mentioned in, in the report about um, uh, the American unemployment data, because I, I think that is a very easy to understand example of where you would have use for something like an AI algorithm. Uh, because sometimes you just want to churn a lot of data to find anomalies. 
and uh, having an algorithm, if it could do, that is exactly what an algorithm at a hospital does when it scans uh, X-ray images. It searches for uh, anomalous, something that's out of the ordinary. Uh, you could take the same type of algorithm to search through thousands of reports and just find things that stands out. This this was, this was odd. You need to look at that. I remember a quote uh, while I'm interviewing doctors about uh, AI scanning uh, X-ray images. Does that mean that uh, every radiologist will be out of job? No, one expert said. Radiologists will not be put out of work by AI. But radiologists who doesn't know to un understand how to use AI will be out of a job. And it might be something similar with journalism that if we don't learn to adopt this technology, whether as a news organization or as an individual journalist, then we will have a problem because it will be such a big advantage for the organization that actually uses this technology uh, as much as you can. Or for me as a journalist, if I use all these tools, that will be such a big competitive ad advantage that somebody who sort of still is writing on a typewriter will not have a chance. Uh, I think uh, probably we, we are going to see sort of the most boring tasks being automated. And that, that would be more of the things like that happens already, that uh, writing short pieces about uh, the quarterly result of, of a company and so on. Uh, I think that... Uh, before we're going to see longer stories written by computers, and we, we, we are going to see that sooner or later, but maybe not within the couple of uh, the next couple of years. Uh, I think two things that will happen before that. One is, I think, definitely, if you sort of look at the borderline, the, the line between journalism and uh, uh, marketing and also sales, that is probably going to be partly blurred. I, I think, I mean, if you take home improvement as, as an example, that is, I mean, you, you're probably going to see that kind of uh, services already much more present in areas where you don't need the, the journalistic integrity sort of to defend society. If you're going to cover an election, you want to be pretty sure that the journalist that does that is reasonably unbiased. Uh, but if you are looking at a home improvement magazine, you could be much more, you, you don't need that kind of high standards. And there you could probably do more in terms of uh, creating content for you that is more relevant to you and also sell all the, all kind of products to you that you, you might need. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that if we sort of fast forward 20 years from now, things will be probably look much different. We don't know when sort of the next big leap is taken when it comes to AI, but things will happen. And the way we say now, for instance, we will never see a truly safe driving car. Well, how do you know that? Same thing, 
uh, you could say today, there's no way you will have a news organization that doesn't rely on humans at all. Well, how do you know that? Uh, I don't know if we ever will actually have, let's say, a publication as complete as the New York Times or Svenska Dagbladet. Uh, will AI ever be able to produce that? I have no clue. Uh, but uh, would it be possible with the technology that we can see today uh, to create a publication that without any human interaction uh, creates uh, content about, um, let's say, local football in the Stockholm region? Absolutely. Uh, you can definitely uh, reach the level where you don't just report the results from every game, but also add some flavor to it. Like the audience was bored or they were cheering or that they you had an incident in the 34 minutes uh, and the, everybody was booing and so on. All that kind of things would you would be able to add with the technology you have today if you would ju just want to create that. Uh, so this definitely, just as there will be uh, cars that drives by themselves on the motorway, you will have some kind of basic news sites without any human interaction. I'm pretty sure about that. Will we ever have a AI New York Times? I have no idea. We're going to leave Michael and Cecilia now, but lastly, we're going to let Cecilia give us a bit of information about where we might be heading with all this. Reuters Institute in Oxford, they have a yearly report, like a trend report in January. And this, this year was the first year, I mean, they've talked about AI in the newsroom a long time, but this year was actually the first year they mentioned robo-journalism. And 40%, because they do a big survey of, of media leaders, and 40% said that it was either somewhat or important this year, which has like from, gone from zero to 40. So quick thank you to uh, one of our listeners, Florian, for requesting that we looked further into robo-journalism. It was really interesting, so thank you. Jacob, what did you make of the episode? The coolest thing that I think about the episode is honestly the local reporting stuff. It opens up things there is an audience for, but there isn't a capacity to produce, whether that's financial reporting or the local sports. And so it enables things that would otherwise not get coverage to be covered. I mean, I think it's lovely. I live in a small, like, it's not even a town. It's a village, if that. I mean, I'm sort of staring out on a couple of horses in my next door neighbor. Uh, but the potential for having the local community, like, gathering people or the local football team, because we do have a football team. It's tiny, and we're not in any sort of league. Uh, so to have articles written about that and maybe distributed in a social media platform or that like printed and put on yeah. the wall of the football team, 
I think that people would be super proud of that. Like today, the the village football team even like lost with five points to whatever tennis team. It like that would be so cool for people. I think it has the potential to make people feel seen, even though they're sort of in a a small community. And I mean, it's it's as the there aren't really resources to to do that other than no. using computers. So it's almost like every local community, no matter how small, can have the capacity now to have kind of high quality journalistic reviews uh, that otherwise just wouldn't be captured. You had some interesting conversations this week on LinkedIn, didn't you, about the autonomous ships? Yeah. I had Albin reach out to me. Um, really happy about that. Always fun when people reach out. And he told me about this thing when if a ship is abandoned, you can actually more or less, given some legal jumping through hoops, you can more or less take over a ship that's been abandoned. And that's going to have implications if you don't have any people on board. Like, how does that work? Because so how it works is if you salvage a ship that there are no people on, you are you're 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 entitled to some reimbursement from the person owning the ship because basically it can be kind of dangerous if like ships are are moving around. So the 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 rules sort of state that you have to get thoroughly reimbursed to the point where it can actually be equal to the value of the ship. So therefore you, you're given the ship uh, more or less. So it's something to think about. And I think all of these like weird laws that might come into effect, or that's going to be the next 20 years when it comes to autonomous systems and responsibility. It's not only about the trolley problem. It's also about, and the trolley problem is where you, you have the AI car, uh, decide who lives or dies in a scenario where there's a problem. Uh, but here you have all these laws and uh, all of that stuff that we need to take into consideration. And, and that's going to be an adventure, I think. So please keep the comments coming um, and the requests for shows. Um, we, we definitely take inspiration from it and it sparks conversations. So if you have any comments about this episode or, or suggestions for the episode, please get in touch with uh, Jacob or I on LinkedIn. If you'd like to support the podcast, please give us a rating. You can rate us on Spotify by pressing the show's robot icon to get to the show page and you'll find the star rating just below the title. Thank you.